Welcome to Socolo Radio, the on-air home of the Socolo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Laura Villalpando. Tonight, when did motherhood become a career, and is it a professional disaster? Has the idea of leaving work to become a stay-at-home mom been romanticized, even fetishized, at the expense of women's future economic stability? On tonight's SoCalo Radio, Los Angeles Times columnist Megan Daum sits down with two women who explore this theme. Journalist Leslie Bennett, in her book, The Feminine Mistake, contends that two women have been misled by the false choice of being good workers or being good mothers. Meg Wallitzer's novel, The Ten-Year Nap, is a story of four highly educated friends who put their careers on hold for a decade while they raise their children. Stay tuned for smart and provocative conversation as Daum, Bennett, and Wallitzer address this complicated topic. Recorded live at the Hammer Museum as part of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, here is Megan Daum. I just want to say a couple of things. And the first is that even though I find this topic fascinating and could talk about it for a long time, I'm not a, a mother myself. Nothing is pulling me away from my work other than my, my own procrastination. So I'm approaching this conversation more as an anthropologist than as somebody on one side or another. A, a friend of mine said, why are you hosting this when you don't even have kids yourself? And I said, well, I thought of it, so I get to have this conversation with you. Um, and I don't have kids, so I have a lot of time to think about who I would like to talk to. <laughs> The other thing I want to say, and more importantly, is that I think this is a kind of conversation that for a lot of people tends to, it, it can sort of devolve into a like, well, lucky for you that you even have this problem. And I think we just need to acknowledge up front that presumably the three of us and many people in this audience know that, that work for, for most people in the world is an economic necessity and not an ideological construct. And this is certainly something that we can, we can talk more about. But sometimes one of the things that happens when we talk about subjects like this is that people get, get grumpy and kind of say, well, nice for you that you can have this problem. And, and half of the conversation gets ignored because people are feeling self-righteous and grouchy. So let's just say up front that the three of us know, know that we're lucky. This is a privileged, sort of rarefied conversation in many ways, not in all ways, but in many ways to have. Um, but that doesn't mean it's not worth having. So let's have it. <laughs> so I guess what I wanted to start off with has to do with the so-called demise of, of feminism. And I'm trying to get a hold of kind of maybe when that notion started appearing in people's, in people's minds and both of your opinions on that. I mean, a lot of women, I think now in their 30s and their 40s, bought into this notion, and happily so, that, that the women's movement sold us a bill of goods, that you really can't have it all. That the idea of being a, a successful working mother is like this 80s construct that is tantamount, equivalent to shoulder-padded suit and Nike shoes, you know, with a pantyhose or something. And I'm, I'm curious if either of you have a kind of time stamp on, on when, when these ideas shifted. Like, when did, when did women start to feel that this was an okay thing to do, or maybe even a preferable thing to do, to drop out? Leslie, do you want to start? 
I think within the last decade, I think that the 70s was the decade when the divorce revolution blindsided the women of the feminine mystique, and an awful lot of them lost their husbands and didn't have a way to earn a living. And and the baby boomers, this was our mother's generation, an awful lot of the women that I interviewed for my book said to me, I saw what happened to my mother and her friends, and their lives were destroyed when they realized they couldn't count on marriage to support them for the rest of their lives, and I vowed that it would never happen to me. And so we all went out into the workforce and got careers and economic autonomy. And in the 70s, a lot of barriers fell. And in the 80s, it was the power suit decade. And then I think as with most, you know, most social change is two steps forward and one step back. And there's always a counter reaction to things. And this has been a very conservative era. And I think that for Gen X and Gen Y mothers, a lot of them don't have the personal experience of seeing what happens to women over the long run if they are not financially self-sufficient. So it's not real to them in the way that it was to baby boomers. And this has been a very conservative era. There's been a resurgence of fundamentalist religion and other forces that glorify traditional roles. And I think a lot of women really romanticize roles that didn't work out well the last time and aren't likely to work out well this time, but it takes a while for that to become clear over the course of a life. Meg, you were born in 1959, if if Wikipedia can be trusted, which it often can't. Um, But that makes you older than the characters in your book. The characters in your book, it's four friends. They're they're around 40. I don't know if I'm around 40. I know. know. (laughs) I'm really bad at math. (laughs) Yeah. did you, what made you put them in that in that age group? Was it something that you thought a lot about in terms of generation and identity in your characters? Yeah, I had known women like the women in my book, and I met them through my kids' school. I mean, I think that that is sometimes an awakening. You meet different kinds of people from the ones you knew before. And I met a lot of women who, before I knew them, I would have had a particular opinion about them. They left work. They left their jobs. I didn't. What's wrong with them, essentially? And I was judgmental. Like, why didn't they find a way to work it all out? And as I got to know them, I saw that there wasn't any one reason, that there were a lot of complications, and I liked a lot of these women, and I thought, I'll write a novel about them, like, not not taking a stand, as Leslie's book really does, and, and brilliantly, but just sort of saying, what is it like for these women who stop working? And I got to know them, and once I did get to know them well and, and got to know my characters well, you can see the emotional complexities, and you can see the rewards that were in their, in their lives. So it really happened through my kids' school. Interesting. Okay. Well, I want to have each of you read just a little bit from your book so we can kind of get a, get a flavor for them. And Leslie, why don't you go first and then Meg? On New Year's Day 2006, the New York Times published an essay by Terry Martin Hecker, a mother of five who had once crusaded as a self-appointed spokesperson for the joys of being a full-time homemaker. More than a quarter of a century ago, Hecker wrote a book called Ever Since Adam and Eve and made a national tour. I spoke to rapt audiences about the importance of being there for your children as they grew up, of the satisfactions of making a home, preparing family meals, and supporting your hard-working husband, she recalled. So I was predictably stunned and devastated when, on our 40th wedding anniversary, my husband presented me with a divorce. While her husband took his girlfriend to Cancun, Hecker sold her engagement ring to pay for repairs to the roof of her house. When I filed my first non-joint tax return, it triggered the shocking notification that I had become eligible for food stamps, she reported. 
Hecker was able to parlay her involvement with the local village board into a stint as mayor of her community, a challenging full-time job that paid a whopping annual salary of $8,000, she noted dryly. How many of today's affluent wives would welcome the prospect of spending their later years trying to live on $8,000 a year? Looking back on her life, Hecker, the grandmother of 12, said she doesn't regret marrying her husband because the result was the family she cherishes. What she regrets is having sacrificed her ability to support herself adequately. Will younger generations learn to heed such cautionary tales? Not unless more women speak out to tell them why and show them how. The prize, in the end, is incalculable the chance to live the fullest possible life, to become our own most complete and authentic selves, as well as to protect ourselves from the vicissitudes of fortune. In the history of the world, no females have ever enjoyed a greater range of opportunities than do American women today. Most of the barriers to realizing those possibilities are self-imposed, the products of an anachronistic myth that encourages female dependency while obscuring its price. Fortified by a strong sense of their options and entitlements, many of today's young mothers see their decision to give up paid work and stay home with their families as a positive choice that reflects their values, one that should therefore be respected. But the real issues involved here can no longer be assessed in terms of such familiar catchwords as choice or values or respect. It has become inescapably clear that choosing economic dependency as a lifestyle is the classic feminine mistake. No matter what the reasons, justifications, or circumstances, it's simply too risky to count on anyone else to support you over the long haul. In an era of disappearing pensions, threats to Social Security, high divorce rates, a volatile labor market, and attenuating lifespans, the social safety net continues to erode even as the needs grow, particularly for women who are twice as likely as men to slide below the poverty line in their later years. Choosing dependency can therefore jeopardize any woman's future and that of her children. No matter what one's politics, this much is indisputable. But the ultimate toll of this willfully retrograde choice is even greater than the financial vulnerability it entails. Just as the Victorians sent men out into the public realm to earn a living while confining women to the private domain of the home, today's culture continues to promulgate a modern version of the female cult of domesticity. Women are still presumed to find true fulfillment by limiting themselves to the care of their families rather than exploring their own intellectual, creative, financial, and political potential in the larger world. But in striving to become a fully mature, fully realized human being, there is no substitute for taking complete responsibility for your own life. And unless they've got their eyes tightly closed so they won't have to see it, most women, certainly those past the early years of adulthood, secretly know the truth. I've been a reporter for more than three decades, and I couldn't possibly count the number of women I've interviewed who thought they could depend on a husband to support them, but who ultimately found themselves alone and unprepared to take care of themselves and their children. With heartbreaking frequency, I've sat in so many lovely living rooms over the years, listening to women wearing beautiful clothes and expensive jewelry tell me they are broke and have no idea how they'll earn a living on their own now that their breadwinner is gone. 
The feminine mistake has cost women far too much over the last century, but we can escape it only by recognizing economic dependency for the dangerously anachronistic trap that it is. It's time to confront reality, to protect ourselves and our children, and to embrace the happier, more secure lives we can earn by taking full responsibility for our own futures. Terry Martin Hecker still defends her decision to remain home with her children until they were of school age, but she admits that it was a big mistake not to maintain some income-producing capability. We live in a society where there is no job security anymore, so just on that level, women have to be prepared to support themselves, she told Women's E! News recently. Hecker's divorce has inspired her to start writing a follow-up volume to her original 1980 polemic promoting the joys of being a full-time homemaker. The title of her new work is Disregard First Book. (laughs) You're listening to When Did Motherhood Become a Career and Is It a Professional Disaster? Megan Daum in discussion with journalist Leslie Bennett and novelist Meg Wallitzer. I'm Laura Villalpando. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. For information or to listen to past broadcasts, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We'll return in a moment. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio. If you want to understand the way that Cuba has changed, just trace the history of its most famous rum, Bacardi. And so Bacardi became associated with Cuba in the mind of tourists, in the minds of Cubans, both for its political profile and for its contribution to sort of the cultural image of Cuba. I'm Steve Inskeep. One Cuban family as viewed through a glass. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Weekday mornings on 89.3 KPCC. Here's one thing Republicans and Democrats can agree on. KPCC is the place for in-depth coverage of the candidates and issues. Republicans and Democrats know that individual membership support makes that coverage possible. Become a member now at kpcc.org. For $5 a month, we'll send you a KPCC window sticker and reusable grocery bag. While you're on the website, click the Tell a Friend button to spread the word. Cast your vote at kpcc.org. Thanks. Every day on All Things Considered, we bring you novel ideas and remarkable stories. This is really a new development. Oh, my God, I will never forget that. You can't teach that kind of stuff. You just have it. We can shock them a little, too. Something new, something unexpected, maybe even unforgettable on All Things Considered from NPR News. Weekday afternoon, starting at 3.30 on 89.3 KPCC. Laura Villalpando. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. Now it's back to when did motherhood become a career and is it a professional disaster? Megan Daum in discussion with journalist Leslie Bennett and novelist Meg Wallitzer. Meg, what would your characters make of this book? Not you. Your characters. <laughs> I really can't speak for them. <laughs> Although, 
we were talking, and my characters are younger than I think a lot of the women in your book, Leslie, really. So maybe if there were a sequel to my book, all the women would be committing ritual seppuku <laughs> when they realized what they'd done. But I'm just going to read the very opening. All around the country, the women were waking up. Their alarm clocks bleated one by one, making soothing sounds or grating sounds or the stirrings of a favorite song. There were hums and beeps and a random burst of radio. There were wind chimes and roaring surf and the electronic approximation of bird song and other gentle animal noises. All of it accompanied the passage of time, sliding forward in liquid crystal. Almost everything in these women's homes required a plug. Voltage stuttered through the curls of wire, and if you put your ear to one of the complicated clocks in any of the bedrooms, you could hear the burble of industry deep inside its cavity. Something was quietly happening. Bip, bip, bip. By a bed on this Monday morning in fall, the first alarm went off in a house with cedar shingles in a small, buffed suburb, and a woman sat up, the prospects of the entire day rising before her. Boop, boop, boop. Three towns over, there went another alarm, a full octave lower, and a woman broke the skin of consciousness in her colonial blinking. Throughout the region and in others not unlike it, in houses broader and more spread apart, or else smaller and tightly bunched, the women awakened. Farther away across unswimmable waters and over a nexus of highway and bridge in the residential towers of the city, a whole other crop of alarms peeped and chirped and wailed and beckoned. They sounded in both suburb and city on individual night tables beside face-down, broken-spined volumes being read for book group with titles like Bigfoot Was Here, A Father's Letters to His Newborn Son from Iraq, and among curling school permission slips, I blank, allow my child blank, to attend the field trip to the recycling plant. <laughs> the intensifying chorus of alarms urged the women to get up and go wherever the day would take them. Some would shepherd their children into huge, fully stocked, cornball American family vehicles, adjusting rearview mirrors and backing out into the world, while others would grab their children by their soft little hands and yank them like pull toys into the mash of urban foot traffic. One by one, the women began their separate and familiar routines. Unlike in the past, there were no presentations to give, no fears of having to keep vast savannas of information in their heads all morning, and then at 11 a.m. having to recite it all aloud to a room full of colleagues. Because now, there were no colleagues, just as there were no conference calls or lunches with a client. All of that was over, and when the alarm sounded in the morning and the women were startled awake, they sometimes took a momentary dip into the memory of what they'd left behind, and then, with varying degrees of relief or regret, they let the memory go. Coo-coo-coo, in a light-stippled apartment on 3rd Avenue in New York City, on the 11th floor of a newish colossus of a rental apartment building fashioned of glazed brown brick, an alarm called out in Amy Lamb's bedroom. She was alone, as she always was when the Timex went off, for Leo had been awakened by his own clock over an hour earlier and had staggered like a newborn monster through the violet shadows to the bathroom and the elevator and the gym and then finally to the office. By the time the doves called to Amy, Leo Buckner was already at his desk in Midtown. As he went about the start of his workday, Amy slowly woke up, her clock which he had bought her as a recent birthday present from the Domestic Edge catalog, and which, depending on the setting, made a sound like one of a variety of animals. Today sounded like a flock of morning doves. Leo and their son Mason were sent into a shared frenzy by gadgetry. Their apartment, because of this, contained objects that blinked and hummed and made animal noises and sometimes actually spoke sentences in flattened android voices, <laughs> remarking, "'Your keys are over here!' so clearly indifferent to where your keys actually were. 
But husband and son were content with the impersonal nature of electronics. They didn't need these objects to love and embrace them because Amy did, and that was enough. Mason, she cried in a dry, fruitless morning voice, time to get up. There was no response. It would have made much more sense if she'd simply gone into his room right away and hung over his bed like a jackal in a tree the way some mothers did. Mason, she cried again, rasping but loud, still nothing. So she gave it a rest, standing in the middle of her pale bedroom and moving her head from side to side. At age 40, her physical self seemed to make so much more noise and require so much more attention than it used to. She stretched her arms over her head, her body nicely thin, but still battered by middle-aged, tight-nippled inside one of Leo's oversized undershirts, which she wore to bed each night out of habit, because long ago he had said it was an erotic sight. For some reason, men often liked women in some sort of nominal drag, though Amy couldn't remember the last time Leo had been all that excited about her. Maybe she should have had gadgets affixed to her body, she thought. Instead, married for 13 years and in the middle of their life together, they often lay in bed at night like two tired prehistoric animals that had individually been out in the world fighting for survival. What a stupid day, Leo had said last night in the dark, and his hand half-heartedly, almost accidentally, bumped against her breast and stayed there. Stutzman wanted to know when we're going to be ready to go to court. I told him I can only do so much that I'm not Vishnu, so he said, who's that, a new associate? Whenever Leo expressed unhappiness about his job, Amy tried to find something to say that might be a comfort. My day was bad, too, she'd said. The pediatrician's waiting room, like Typhoid Central, and we sat there for an hour. It was as though they performed small reenactments for each other. When he described and acted out scenes from his life at Kenley Schuber, she easily pictured the toast-colored corridors, the conference room with its oak table and recessed lights. But as she began to tell him about her day, he made polite sounds of sympathy in his throat. She knew he could barely picture Dr. Andrea Wishstein's waiting room with its streppy, fractious children pushing wooden beads along wire on the floor and its pastels of clowns on unicycles on the walls. The paradox was that Leo adored her but wasn't always interested in how she spent her time. Jill Hamlin, Amy's closest friend since college, who had moved from the city last spring to a suburb, had recently told her about a woman she'd met there whose husband had admitted that he swallowed their hyperactive son's Ritalin every evening on the commuter train going home so he could actually pay attention at night when his wife told him about her day. Leslie, you talk in your book about an idea called the 15-year paradigm. And this has to do with the idea that, that this is really the period during which children are acutely needy. And it's really only about 15 years. And that's only if you have, if you have, that's if you have more than one child, basically. But somehow the culture seems to be you know, foist upon us this idea that this is like a forever thing, like you're going to be permanently saddled with this out of control. And your characters buy into this idea, too. And I'm, I'm curious from both of you where that comes from. But they, her characters have young children, and I have two kids. And I think that motherhood is such an overwhelming experience, at least certainly was for me, that you don't really understand when you are first hit with it particularly if you have a cu- you know, couple of kids or more in a short period of time, that this is not going to be your life forever. And one of the things that became clear to me as a reporter when I started researching this subject is that our thinking and our cultural mythology has not kept up with so many things, but one of them is the changing actuarial realities of life in America for women. A hundred years ago, when a woman's average lifespan was 39, you were going to die in childbirth, giving birth to your fifth or your seventh kid, and 
it was not unreasonable to think that your husband was going to support you until the day you died. These days, you know, women's lifespans have doubled and more. More than a third, between a third and a half of American women today are expected to live into their 90s. All of my friends who are in their 50s have mothers in their 90s. Many of them have mothers who are approaching and reaching 100. And the average age of widowhood in America is 54. So by the time women are 60, two-thirds of them don't have partners. And women are not really getting that you're going to spend 20 or 30 or 40 years alone, even if you had a happy, successful marriage. So that's one thing. The other thing is, if your adult lifespan, if you graduate from college when you're 22 and you live to 92, that's an adult lifespan of 70 years. And as one of the experts that I interviewed for my book put it, motherhood is a temp job. If you have two kids who are two or three years apart, which is the configuration of the typical American nuclear family, the intensive hands on period of mothering, which I called the 15-year paradigm, is 15 years or less. And so 15 years out of 70 really isn't that much, relatively speaking. And yet what women are doing is making these irrevocable choices about their lives, their economic self-sufficiency, their careers, and their ability to be happy throughout the course of a very long adult lifetime based on the needs of the moment, which are very, very quickly changing. The need, you know, that kids have for you to be there 24-7, I mean, by the time they're five, they're in school. Last year, I had two kids in high school, and uh, they were out of the house for 11 and a half hours a day. They got home at quarter to seven at night from, you know, sports and stuff. So you really have a lot of, a lot of time on your hands for most of your adult life. I, I think that's true, but I also want to ask about something, and Meg, maybe you can talk about this, because we won't, we won't make this all about your character. Feel free to be your own character as well. But I mean, there is this phenomenon where parenthood as a job has become sort of ratcheted up. I mean, the reason we, you know, we called this panel, has motherhood become a career? And is that a bad thing? Is it a professional disaster? Is because we, you know, in the last, it seems to me, 15, 20 years, it's not just enough to raise your kids. You have to parent them. You have to buy all this stuff. And that becomes, it's it's just become overwhelming. And it does become time consuming. Meg, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, that's childish commodity. There's a lot of that that you see. But I was thinking that, like these phrases, like helicopter mom, women have been accused of being, um, you know, both cold and unloving and, and created sort of, oh, there's another term, a schizophrenogenic mother that would create schizophrenia. But helicopter mothers, which actually, it's a funny phrase. I mean, but there are no phrases about fathers, are there? Just as there are like no, like there's the phrase boy genius, but not girl genius. You know, we, we kind of punish women for either being too involved or being too uninvolved. And there's this fetishization of motherhood, which was sort of implied in the title of this of this panel tonight, that I'm confounded by. And I wonder, part of it, is it is it created by the media? Do women create it themselves? You know, when I was a young mother, one or two years ago, <laughs> now, when, I, when I first became a mother, I was very anxious as a mother. I felt somehow that everyone else had a secret handbook about how to do this and that they were okay with going to a play group. You know, I didn't even know these words. Suddenly they're in the lexicon. Like, juice box was one word. Like, everybody knew them, and I didn't, like, know them. And I didn't want to talk about ear thermometers, and I thought I should, and I was very anxious in this way, I, because I felt, in some sense, that this would last forever. I mean, I think that one of the reasons that happens is because 
parenthood, at least in my experience, is so profound. It's so all-consuming. You're really tired. You're at your most vulnerable when it first hits you. And it's kind of what you want to talk about and think about all the time, like when you have a new guy. You know, it has that quality. And I think it is easy to fall into it and all of its trappings in a very, very deep way and not to think necessarily this is going to end. But do you, either of you feel like that is happening more now than it did in the 70s and the 80s? What's oh, yeah. the, what was the... What was Absolutely. the cutoff point? Even in the era of the feminine mystique in the 50s, I mean, kids grew up, they just did not have parents hovering the way that they do now. I think if you, the, the sociologists, uh, you know, the, that I interviewed and, and, you know, cultural historians and so on, talk a lot about this sort of professionalization of motherhood. And I think what you have is a generation or two of very well-educated, unbelievably competent women. I mean, a lot of the women that I interviewed had, you know, Harvard MBAs and law degrees, and they had quit these unbelievably high-powered careers to stay home with their kids. And they bring all of those attributes, you know, the drive and the intelligence and the skills to this job that really, in many ways, to be quite honest, I don't mean to be offensive or anything, it doesn't require it, you know? And, you know... What they bring, I mean, the, you know, I've, I've had women call me up and say, I'm going to kill myself because I just spent four hours in a meeting where these Harvard MBA moms were arguing about whether to sell T-shirts or tote bags at the school auction, you know? And, I mean, it's just these the, the life or death quality of intensity that they bring to this job that really, it's like what Judith Warner, and she wrote about this in the book Perfect Madness, you know, about the mothers who pull all-nighters staying up hand-painting pictures on the paper plates that are going to be used to hand out snacks at the next day's soccer game. You know, if you think this is necessary, you know, it's time for a reevaluation, and it puts a lot of pressure on everybody else. Did, did it, has it come about because of sort of boomer narcissism and a, and a it's not culture. boomers. Well, but did it kind of did it start there? I mean, I'm just trying to get at what sort of tipped the culture over into this idea that the. I mean, a lot of it is safety issue. I mean, there are sort of practical reasons for this, but it's a mentality as well, Meg. I think that there's a fear that there aren't enough places in elite society, and that there's this sort of fear that only the you know the best will get ahead. I think that you know in the 50s. It wasn't so much that motherhood was idealized, like being a housewife was, but children didn't need to be gifted. You didn't hear mothers talking about every child was so brilliant, needed to be in a special gifted program. It wasn't that way at all. It was the house and the home. The child was part of it. Now I think there's, because there's a generalized anxiety about what will happen to my child in this world in which only the top ones will get ahead, as though it's like Japan where you take that test and if you don't pass it, forget it. Mm-hmm. I think that test is sort of coming here, and it's called the SAT. So I think that that has contributed to it a lot, this sort of anxiety and a sense that mothers might have an influence over how their children will do. You're listening to When Did Motherhood Become a Career? And Is It a Professional Disaster? Megan Daum in discussion with journalist Leslie Bennett and novelist Meg Wallitzer. This is Socalo. I'm Laura Villalpando. Check out our events around town. On September 9th, Joe Matthews, Irvine Senior Fellow at the New America Foundation, moderates a panel including Joshua Peshtalt, a vice president of United Teachers Los Angeles, part of a group of one-time union dissidents who have risen to power with an eye toward more aggressive organizing around issues that extend far beyond union contracts. 
Mickey Sachaki, a board member of the California Teachers Association, the largest teachers union in the country, David Tukovsky, a former school board member in LAUSD who has fought with and against big teachers unions, and Caprice Young, another former LAUSD board member and now CEO of the California Charter School Association. And on Wednesday, September 10th, Jonathan Gold, Pulitzer Prize-winning food critic for LA Weekly, Sokala brings together a panel of prominent local chefs that will include, among others, Michael Simirusti, co-owner and executive chef of Providence Restaurant, Octavio Becerra, chef and owner of Palette Food and Wine, Evan Kleiman, executive chef of Angeli Cafe, and host of The Good Food Show on KCRW, to ask what exactly Los Angeles cuisine might be. Admission to these and all Socolo events is free, but reservations are recommended. For more information or to hear past programs and lectures, just click on our website, socolola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We'll return in a moment to When Did Motherhood Become a Career and Is It a Professional Disaster? Megan Daum in discussion with journalist Leslie Bennett and novelist Meg Wallitzer. Stay tuned to Socolo Radio. The recent Republican National Convention featured a number of attacks on mainstream media and talked about a cultural divide within the United States between so-called elites and regular American folk. I'm Larry Mantle, inviting you to be with me for the next Air Talk as we take a look at whether there is such a cultural divide in the country and, if there is, how that might play out in the presidential election. Air Talk, weekday mornings at 10 on 89.3 KPCC. You already know how to get KPCC on your radio and your computer. Now you can get NPR and KPCC news on your cell phone or PDA. Go to kpcc.org to learn about NPR Mobile from KPCC. You can get hourly headlines, news stories, or hear the Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me quiz, all whenever it's convenient for you. NPR and KPCC news, on air, online, and now on the phone, too. It's back to business as usual after the two national political conventions, and business as usual includes another season of television. I'm Pat Morrison. There's a new show with a familiar face, Margaret Cho. She's a hit on stage, and there was that sitcom All-American Girl, but now she's back on TV, on VH1, on her own terms, in what promises to be a surreal reality show. Hear all about it from Margaret Cho herself, here Monday, beginning at 1 p.m. Laura Villalpando. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. Now it's back to When Did Motherhood Become a Career and Is It a Professional Disaster? Megan Daum in discussion with journalist Leslie Bennett and novelist Meg Wallitzer. 
it's not just about the kids and the needs of the kids. It's about the needs of the mothers. I mean, there is an emerging body now of social science research about the more long-term effects of what happens when, you know, for lack of a better term, when helicopter moms have to see their kids grow up and leave home. And the New York Times did a fascinating piece a couple of months ago about how employers are having huge problems with these mothers because their kids grow up and move away and go to work and this, you'll have a 29-year-old in some job, and his mother will be calling the boss and saying, I want to arrange to have a special lunch delivered to my son. And this one mother said to the boss, you know, I, I could introduce you to people in the community. I've been here for a long time. And the boss is like, you know, this mother is tr- truly insane, and she really needs to stop calling me. And the reporter asked the 29-year-old son why his mother was so intrusive and bizarre. And he said... Um, Um, Well, it's really a sad thing because she had a career and she gave it up to become a mother and then her kids grew up and she doesn't know what to do with herself and um, she can't stop. And they asked the mother about this, and she said, well, uh, you know, it's my job. I just want my children to be happy. And she really couldn't process the idea that at 29, how you make a, you know, healthy, well-adjusted whole kid who can function in the world is not to be doing this stuff. So I think it very much has to do with the mother's needs. They have given up other outlets of intellectual and creative satisfaction and achievement. And the thing that you realize when your kids get to be teenagers is that if you are living through your children at that point, you're in trouble because they have their own independent lives. But I want to say something about the notion of rewarding work, of work being inherently rewarding. Sandra Singlow, perhaps you read this, reviewed, I I think, both of your books. It was your, both of your books were mentioned in the review in The Atlantic. And she, she made, I thought, an excellent point, which is that the people who tend to talk about the richness of of work and how fulfilling it is tend to be kind of like people like us who have really cool well, just let me finish. Let me finish. Who have really cool jobs, and you know, obviously, it's better to get out of the house and do something than stay in the house. But on a certain level, planning a meal for your family and going into the supermarket and choosing certain foods is got to be more rewarding than working in that supermarket. That's a typical thing that elitists who are really not in touch with people who don't lead elite lives like to say. And I have to tell you, as a reporter, it's not true. I interviewed women who were in minimum wage jobs in the heartland, who were working at McDonald's, who were working at Walmart and Kmart. And work was very important in their lives because it gave them a place to go outside of the family. And this is borne out by tons of social science research. It gives them a place to go outside of the family. It gives them a place where they can get positive reinforcement and rewards as well as some sense of financial empowerment. And those things are really, really important to women. Those things are absolutely important, but I do think we need to be careful about romanticizing the workplace in the same way these people were complaining about are romanticizing the home. You know what I'm saying? Meg, please Well, one of my characters, in fact, uh, Amy, who that scene was about, is a former lawyer herself. And like a lot of women I knew who were verbal they ended up taking the LSATs almost on a lark and did, you know but knowing somehow that they were stepping into this life that half unconsciously really in a sense because they were good with words but they didn't know what to do with it and they ended up at corporate law firms didn't love their job and wanted to leave and if you go back half time it's basically full time with half pay you know it, and it didn't work it didn't work with their lives and i saw this quite frequently so for me really i mean i grew up with a 
a strong feminist mother who, whose life had been changed by the women's movement, who became a novelist from the women's movement, really. And I thought that everybody would find a job that they loved and that everybody had a passion and something they would be really great at. I don't think that that is necessarily true. And that's one thing that I, I understand what you're saying as well. And I do want to sort of add to what I just said that I think work is a great tonic. It's a great solace. I think it is for most people. But the notion that everyone will find a work they were absolutely destined to do is not necessarily true. Yeah, I actually want to read, if you'll if you'll bear with me, um, a, a very, very short passage from your book, which I just found really, really moving and very pertinent to what we're talking about. This is when Amy goes to a law firm event with her husband. This is toward the end of the book, and she's sort of scanning the room, seeing the people she used to work with and, you know, contemplating what her life has become. And you write, she'd sought satisfaction around the edges, and time had slid past. And until recently, she'd rarely had been idle, and often, in fact, had been very busy. That life could be so boring, of course, she thought, not unlike the way a job could easily be boring. It seemed to her now, looking around this huge ballroom of corporate lawyers and their spouses, that work did not make you interesting. Interesting work made you interesting. And can you, I mean, was that something that, that you sort of came to in, in creating these characters, or has that always been in the No, back of I, your really, mind? I really came to a lot of these things while writing it. I have to say, actually, I did an interview, and I sort of paraphrased that quote, and to my horror, they ran it truncated. Wallitzer says, work doesn't make you interesting. Oh, great. And, (laughs) you know, so stay home, women. (laughs) No, I mean, here's why. I found that if you, for instance, if you're sitting at a dinner next to somebody who works in marketing at Revlon, are they necessarily more interesting than the person who stays at home? No, of course not. And it really is about, you know, work can help make you interesting, but you passionate people, we know who they are, right? They have purpose. I think what I've found, and I think that there's a thread, you know, between our books, it's really about purpose and having, a, you know, purpose in your lives makes people lively, viable, all kinds of things. But I think we have to look at the fact that in this country, we raise girls totally differently than boys. And there's a reason why so many fewer girls find work that they have a passion for. They don't because they don't think they need to. When they're two and a half, and I was as guilty as every other mother, we give them, you know, the Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty and Snow White and Little Mermaid tapes. And the point of all of the Disney movies is that Prince Charming is going to come along and take care of you. And by the time they're in middle school, they're reading Chick Lit. And the point of that is getting the guy and they're teenagers and they're looking at the chick flicks and the point of that is that you're going to find Mr. Right and by the time they're in their 20s an awful lot of them are just consciously marking time they don't feel that that they have to find something to commit to that is going to be meaningful that is going to sustain them throughout their adult lives because they think I'm just going to get married and give it up and stay home and raise my family whereas boys understand that they have to take responsibility for their lives lives over the long haul. So if they hit a roadblock or they're in a career that they don't like, they figure out a way to change that. And it's a totally different orientation towards your life. The problem for girls is the mythology isn't borne out by the facts of American life anymore. The guy is not going to take care of you well, until the day you I die. I also think sometimes another thing that happens, and I, I'm guilty of this myself, a lot of women I know, is that we do choose something that we're passionate about that just doesn't pay a whole lot. And that 
that's, we're waiting for, it's not that we're consciously, I mean, some people are, but we're not consciously waiting for someone to rescue us. We just say, well, I'm, an, I'm entitled to go to school for poetry. I'm going to, you know, get a, a PhD in haiku or whatever it is. And, and I mean, it's not so far off. One name that often comes up in the general orbit of this kind of discussion is Linda Hirschman, the, the law professor and, and philosophy professor who wrote Get to Work, a, a manifesto. That's her own, her own term about her book. And it's about the importance of women never stopping work. And one of the points that she actually, first of all, she says, have one child, have no more than one child. And she also says, don't major in art. Now, one of your, Meg, one of your characters is a puppeteer. Yes. And um, I don't want to give, you know, the story away, but she, puppeteering might not be her, her final destination. Well, if she can't make it as a puppeteer, she could end up as a mermaid, I suppose. <laughs> You know, that's the thing. It's like if you lived your life thinking about it in terms of how will this work out, people wouldn't become artists, right? I mean... Especially now. I think it's become a lot harder now. Yeah. Look, you know, if your kid came to you and said, I want to be a writer, you probably should say to them, go to law school or find a way to, you know, perhaps you could become a technical writer. What a horrible thing to say to your daughter. I mean, they have life to whittle them down. Why should a mother do that? And yet, right... And yet, statistically, it's true, as with, as with what we're talking about here, that these women will end up in trouble. Artists will end up in trouble, too. But we, most of us in this room, would think that saying that to a child who wanted to be an artist would be something soul-crushing. I don't believe that. I mean, I have, uh, you know, Linda Hirschman is a hoot. (laughs) The message of her book is basically, which is, you know, get to work. She's telling women, go to work because you're morons if you don't. That was not my approach, you know? I felt that the the point is really women need to think more seriously about work because it doesn't work out in life because of, you know, everything from divorce to husbands getting sick or losing jobs and not being able to support you forever. That's the reason. It's just the fact that it doesn't work out well for women, and I see the carnage as the years go on. I mean, I think one of the things, the important differences between Meg's book and mine is that Meg is looking, Meg's book is a snapshot in time, and it's looking at these mothers, and of the four of them, nothing terrible happens to any of them, but it's a finite period of time relatively early in their lives. And by by the time you get into your 50s, let alone older, you really see the cost of the of these choices for women. I've spent the last year traveling around the country speaking. I have not ever, out of hundreds and hundreds of events, given a speech where older women didn't sort of sidle up to me afterward and wait until they could speak to me privately. And they lean over and they say, you know, I'm 62 and I'm impoverished. You know, I'm 71. I've been widowed for 20 years and I'm destitute. And this is the reality. This is the sort of invisible majority of women out there who are suffering. And we don't hear about them. The media doesn't cover them. And we don't know their stories. But I got to tell you, there are millions and millions of them out there. So I don't agree with Linda Hirschman on a lot of things. She says, you know, have only one child. I had two. She says, don't, you know, study art. I studied art, and I did the classic girl thing, which was I was an English major. You know, if there was ever anything that doesn't... It's not too late to go to law school. She sold a book in college, You know, I know. I've supported (laughs) myself as a writer for, you know, nearly 40 years. I just, I really believe that the best career advice there 
there is is probably follow your bliss because you don't have to be rich. You have to be able to support your kids if you're going to have kids, but doing something that you have a passion for, there are very few things that are as sustaining in life as that. So I think it's really important for both girls and boys to be raised to think about the fact that this is now necessary. I also wonder how much of this is an American phenomenon. I mean, I think probably hugely so. It's not. I, I gave... It's I, not? I mean, no. in, so So in Europe, all the no. great daycare, I, I, that's I, not I, true. I have to tell you something astounding. I was asked to give the uh, keynote speech at the Women's International Summit in Kuala Lumpur a few months ago, and I couldn't believe I was going all the way to Kuala Lumpur to talk about female economic empowerment. But uh, the the um, population there is mixed. It's um, Chinese and Indian and Malay. And the women, a lot of them are living under polygamy. There are all different religions and their problems and their choices were pretty much the same as everybody in this room. They're, because there are rich and poor people, the women who were well-educated and had, had careers, so many of them had given up their careers to stay home with their kids, and then their husbands would dump them, or in under polygamy, the husband would take a new wife, and in polygamy, you don't get a divorce, but he just sort of stops supporting the previous wife, and she's left in the lurch the way that women here are. I mean, in a America, 70% of child support cases are in arrears. Women simply don't get the money that they're supposed to get when their marriages collapse. You know, it's not different in Kuala Lumpur or a lot of other places around the world, and I'm not just talking about industrialized Western Europe. I also, Meg, do you want, you were like going like this. Do you have, do you want to jump in? Please, please jump in. <laughs> Boy, I guess I'm not going to get that Kuala Lumpur translation of my book. <laughs> yes, they're very interested in these subjects there. I think it's complicated, though, because from what I've heard, for I think questions, ideas about work are different in Europe than they are here. I have a little thing in my book based on conversations I'd had with people that in Europe you wouldn't go to a dinner party and people wouldn't say, what do you do? That wouldn't happen because people wouldn't be judged or sort of sized up based on their job right away. There isn't this sort of question of, you know, I think in, in New York at least and probably in L.A., there is this sense you meet somebody... They ask what you do, although as a writer, actually, the worst question you get is, would I have heard of you? Oh. And I've, But after years of being humiliated by this question where you say the names of your books, like kind of embarrassed, and then they go, no, 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 keep, keep going, I finally have the good answer to that question, would I have heard of you in a more just world? <laughs> but I think, I think the idea of sort of sizing somebody up based on, you know, what they can do for you, uh, the sort of utilization idea of people is something that is kind of American. And we really need to separate notions of work from money and ambition. Once we do, it becomes a purer conversation, really. I mean, it becomes about purpose. What are you doing? What, you know, what is the purpose behind your thing other than supporting your family? Well, you know, what's it about? Why are, why are we here? It really yeah. becomes somewhat existential, I have to say. And I think that it's hard to divorce it from money and ambition, which really are male constructs. And when feminism 
took hold. The original ideas really were about divorcing it from that, and I think that we've slipped back. I mean, I don't think feminism has at all disappeared. In fact, it's sort of like Freudian ideas that we think now Freud has been debunked and everybody sort of, you know, makes fun of him. But in fact, notions of the unconscious have been just sort of folded into society. Everybody says he unconsciously wanted to sabotage her, you know. <laughs> that, that's true about feminism, too, that there's this idea, this surge in desire in society about women's rights, but I think that we have really undermined it in a lot of ways. You've just heard journalists Leslie Bennett and novelist Meg Wallitzer with Los Angeles Times columnist Megan Down. This is Socolo Radio, the on-air home of the Socolo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Laura Villalpando. Socolo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. Catch us again next Sunday, or we'll see you at one of our free events around town. For more information, go to SocoloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. The executive producer for Socolo Radio is Peter Stenzel. Douglas Gary is our engineer. Thank you for tuning in. If you want to understand the way that Cuba has changed, just trace the history of its most famous rum, Bacardi. And so Bacardi became associated with Cuba in the mind of tourists, in the minds of Cubans, both for 